have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you now for these uh, this opportunity to come and to sit under your word. And Father, uh, we pray that you would remind us of that. That we do not sit in judgment of the word of God. Rather, we, we know uh, and we rejoice in the fact that it's the word that sits in judgment over us. And so we pray this morning that uh, you would give conviction where needed. We pray that you would give encouragement where needed. And we pray above all that you would remind us of the grace and love and mercy of the Lord Jesus, because this is a morning in which we surely need it. We pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Hand to God, I swear on my mother's grave. As an 18-year-old who played sports, I had heard all kinds of oaths taken. However, sitting in the barracks at Fort Dix, New Jersey in the summer of 1988, the oaths flew fast and furious. They typically accompanied tales of male dominance or stupidity because there's not much difference between male dominance and stupidity when you're talking about young men. We were convinced that in the telling of our tall tales, the inclusion of these kinds of oaths would impress upon our peers the factuality of whatever string of baloney we were currently spinning. I suspect that we've all given or received such oaths. In fact, I believe it's probably a sad reality of life in a fallen world. Well, in our text for this morning, Jesus presents us with the next divinely given component for human flourishing, truth-telling. If human beings are to flourish in the way in which the God who created them intends for them to, they must live in an environment in which the truth is not only valued, but spoken. Our big idea for this morning as we think about this next of uh, Jesus, you have heard it said, but I say to you, is this. In a world where honesty must be promised via oaths, Jesus' followers are to be invariably honest. In a world where honesty must be promised via oaths, Jesus' followers are to be invariably honest. Okay, so here's my moment of uh, very uncomfortable pastoral honesty. Last week, the challenge with the text when you were talking about divorce, uh, it was a pastorally difficult text. This morning's text is not so much pastorally difficult as it is personally difficult. 
You see, as a boy and as a young man, uh, the truth and I had a very uncertain relationship. I remember as a college junior, a guy named Brennan Manning came and spoke at Taylor. And uh, it was very helpful to me. He talked about, hey, we all have these besetting sins, and you need to think about your besetting sins in terms of, of beachheads in your life, and you want the grace of God, you want Jesus to sort of storm those, but you kind of need to know what they are, and you need to be uh, brutally honest about them. And let me just tell you, as uh, someone who's not well acquainted with the truth, being brutally honest about the fact that they are a bald-faced liar is a fairly traumatic experience. And so I come to you this morning and to just let you know that if, as I think about the besetting sins in my life, this is at the top of the list. There was a point in my life in which I would just as soon lie to you as look at you, in spite of the efforts of my, my parents and my siblings. So that very uncomfortable bit of uh, pastoral uh, confession aside, there are three points we want to make in our text this morning. The first one is this. We need to grasp the larger implication. We need to grasp the larger implication. Let's just spell it out. At the beginning, Jesus is letting his followers know that the context in which they find themselves living is a context in which Lying is the given, and telling the truth has to be signaled by some sort of uh, socially and in some sense religiously significant way. We can't simply yet our, let our yes be yes and our no be no, but rather in Jesus' way, he subtly unpacks this accepted custom of the day. Scholars and theologians refer to it as graded speech. Graded speech means that you can tell or you can judge the truthfulness of what I'm telling you by the ferocity and the severity of the oath that I'm going to take. So, for example, as Jesus says, if I'm taking an oath and I swear by heaven that what I'm telling you is true, well, you should know that I'm probably not lying to you because swearing by heaven is a fairly serious thing. Or that I'm swearing by the earth. Or how about if I say, hey, uh, as I live and die by Jerusalem, well, then you should know that you can take what I'm saying seriously. Now, this was particularly insidious, and it would have implications for the church later, uh, because if you were a Jew living in Jesus' day, and a Roman came and spoke to you, or a Gentile in general came and spoke to you, you were under, it was thought, no obligation whatsoever to tell them the truth. In fact... In some circles, it was considered to be a sign of devotion to God. If any time you were asked a question by a godless Gentile, particularly a Roman, you lied to them. That kind of deception was thought to be virtuous. 
And so again, you're in this context in which lying to someone is the given. And so you have to give an oath. And the greater the oath, the greater the assurance of truthfulness. Now, Jesus was not saying anything new when he is basically spelling out for them, listen, here's the deal. You're walking around because you think everyone's lying to you. And by the way, you probably should. Listen to Psalm chapter 12, verse 2. Everyone, not someone or a few people, everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Jesus found himself in the midst of a context that not only accepted lying, but in some instances thought it as being virtuous. It promoted lying. It's interesting, isn't it, that for all the talk of how far we've come as a society, for all the talk about all the advancements we've made, uh, the sad truth is that we are just as bad off as Jesus' listeners were. In fact, we might even be worse. One of the not-so-wonderful additions of this thing called post-modernity is that we hold that truth is now a matter of individual perspective. Something might be true for you, but it's not true for me. If that wasn't bad enough... We have also now, in the day and age in which we live, disconnected speech from both truth and reality. My words mean whatever I want them to mean at the time in which I'm either saying them or the time in which I have to explain them. We've become gifted in spin. We've become gifted in the non-answer. And it isn't just in politics. We live, we find ourselves in the midst of a society that is so completely disconnected speech from truth and reality. Oftentimes, we don't know the truth when we see it. Jesus' context and our context are eerily similar. And so how do we respond? Do we write papers? in which we uh, extol the virtues of this kind of philosophical realism that says there has to be a correlation between the language we use and the thing that's being signified. It's not a bad idea. But Jesus has a much harder and much more practical answer to this particular issue. It's found in verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Other translations put it this way. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this comes from evil, or some translations would say it comes from the evil one. In the book of James, we read that if your yes is not yes and your no is not no, but you're given to these kinds of oaths, James says, uh, just keep in mind that you're going to spend eternity in hell. Jesus has a very, very simple answer to what seems at face level to be a very complicated issue. It's simple, but it's not easy. Now, in the second point 
in your bulletin, you'll see there a quote. It's a quote from the Jewish historian named Josephus. Josephus was no fan of Christians, and yet he had to admit as he was writing about them, as he was describing the particular uh, sort of peculiarities of this new sect, that any word of theirs has more force than an oath. In other words, Jesus' words absolutely came to characterize the early church. They were known as folks whose yes was yes and their no was no. And there were, more, there were plenty of recorded instances in which the early church, in which individual Christians denied taking an oath and simply said, no, no, I don't need to take an oath. Listen, I'm, what I'm telling you is true. I'm telling you the truth. Now, like most simple things in the history of the church, it got pretty complicated. In the Middle Ages, when a time in which the church and the state began to be more closely intertwined and more closely related, suddenly this very simple command of Jesus, let your yes be yes, let your no be no, don't take oaths, it got, began to get a little fuzzy. So that Martin Luther both famously and unhelpfully, and I think unbiblically said, hey, listen, here's what's going on. When Jesus says don't take any oaths, he's talking about personal oaths. He doesn't mean oaths in public. So if the magistrate comes before you and says, I need you to swear to tell the truth, then you ought to take that oath. The early church understood what Jesus was saying. There is not a distinction to be made between our personal truth-telling and our public truth-telling. There ought not be a distinction, and by the way, if you're on social media, uh, you know how soul-wrenching this is when there is this great divide between your public persona and your personal persona. And if you don't, I want to suggest that you familiarize yourself with this. Jesus does not distinguish between personal oaths versus public oaths. Look again at verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Not don't take a private oath, but it's okay to take a public oath. He says, do not take an oath, tell us, at all. It's an all-encompassing term. I wonder, I think it's easy to sit back and go, yeah, we'd do really well to recapture that. But I wonder if we can stop and, and sort of reflect for just a moment on what that would take. That in a society that is absolutely committed to spin and posturing, in a society that has this weird disconnect between our words and reality, like what would it look like for the people of God to recapture this? So that contemporary historians would once again say of Christians, any word of theirs has more force than an oath. Again, friends, I said this is simple. It doesn't mean it's easy. 
Jesus doesn't say things, for example, like uh, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no, unless, of course, someone's life is at stake. Remember in my college ethics class, we read this particular text, and then the scenario was presented that you're living uh, in, in, uh, in, in Amsterdam, uh, and Anne Frank and her family are hiding in your house. The Nazis come and say, are there any Jews living here? How do you respond? It's simple, but it's not easy. That brings us to the third point, that there is a permission that has been taken back. There is a permission that has been taken back. We saw it last week. When we talked about divorce, Jesus recognizes that there is an exception, that there is a permission, and that permission is on the basis of the hardness of the human heart. That there are instances in which the marital covenant has been so broken by one or both of the members within the covenant that it is permissible to get divorced. And in the text that Ella read for us this morning, yes, God values truth-telling, but there is a provision made for the making of oaths. But of course, the kicker is, if you make an oath, you need to keep it. But Jesus says, do not take an oath at all. So why? Why is this permission... On the basis of the hardness of the human heart, why is this thing that is permissible in divorce, why is it taken away now in this area of truth-telling? There's an exception for marriage, but not for speaking the truth. This gets further complicated when we understand that there are times in which telling the truth carries an enormous cost. And I don't mean it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost you something personally. I mean there are times in which uh, you have information that another person doesn't have, and then when they ask you about it and you know the truth and they don't know it and you know it's going to hurt them or it's going to just gut them. And Jesus says, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Why is there an exception for marriage, but not for truth-telling? I want to suggest this morning three reasons, and these are not exhaustive, and they're not, also they're not in your bulletin. So here's the first reason. The first reason, of course, is that God hates lying. God hates lying. Listen to the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. And note how many times lying or falsehood gets mentioned. Here we go. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, 
and one who sows discord among brothers. Two, and we might even argue three, of the seven things on the list that the Bible gives us of the things that God hates, <coughs> deal with our speech. It deals with our relationship to the truth. God hates a lying tongue. God hates a false witness who breathes out lies. And God hates one who sows discord among brothers. Now, that helps us, but it doesn't entirely answer the question. For indeed, we could say, well, pastor, the Old Testament also tells us that God hates divorce. And yet he gives an exception for divorce. Well, let's understand then also, and this is the second thing that's not in your bulletin. God has taken this back, I think, in, sen in a sense, because lying is how sin entered the world. Lying is how sin entered the world. Think about what happens in Genesis chapter 3. God asks Eve, excuse me, God, Satan asks Eve about the relationship between the eating of the fruit and what God is going to do. And Satan not only implies, but he lies about the intention and the nature and the character of God. And Eve believes the lie. Why does God hate lying? Why does Jesus prohibit anything other than the truth to come from his people? Because it was through a lie that sin and death entered the world. Lying is this horrible Pandora's box that opens up all sorts of issues. And Jesus forbids it. The third reason is that the very nature of the gospel is utterly incredible. You're saying, well, what does that have to do with lying? Well, imagine you're living in the first century and you're trying to explain to your neighbor that, number one, there aren't many gods, there's only one God. I mean, that booger's belief to begin with. And then, not only is there this only this one God, but this one God exists in three persons, and that's a little weird because it sounds like you think there's three gods, but there's not. There's one. He exists in three persons. And, oh, yeah, by the way, the second of the three persons came to earth. Okay, well, we've got a category for that because, after all, Zeus and Athena and a bunch of the other gods would come down to earth, usually to make mischief or to just have a good time. But, okay, so God comes to earth. Great. Well, then he's put to death. And he's resurrected. And it's belief in this incarnate, crucified, resurrected second person of the Trinity. It's in belief in him that forgiveness is found. I mean, friends, that's just nuts. I mean, that's, that's just crazy talk. So imagine now if you're trying to share the gospel with your neighbor, if you're trying to share this absolutely incredible sort of mind-boggling, doesn't make any sense news, and Paul knows this. In 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds the church that the gospel is foolishness to the Jews. It's a stumbling block to the Greeks. 
Actually, I flipped those. So if you're a person who every word out of your mouth is a tall tale, or if you're a person who you and the truth have this rather dubious kind of relationship, why in the world would your unbelieving neighbor believe you when you tell them about the gospel? They know that you're a liar. Oh yeah, I haven't really dealt honestly with you, but listen, I just, I need you to believe me that this whole gospel thing, this thing that sounds just insane, it's true. I think this is why Jesus takes back this particular permission. We cannot be people who have a dubious relationship with the truth and yet are called to go and to live and to proclaim and to share this very incredible, this very unbelievable, and yet at the same time, very true message of the gospel. And so we must be people who tell the truth. And we must be people who tell the truth because we are called to be people who in both word and deed proclaim the truth of the gospel. Friends, if you're like me, you are frustrated at times. And by at times, I mean, generally speaking, all the time. You're constantly frustrated and constantly repenting of the hypocrisy in your own life. Yes, Jesus, I know what the Bible teaches, and I stink at it. But this is a place in which our hypocrisy needs to come to an end. This is a place in which we cannot profess Jesus with our mouth while at the same time having this really dubious relationship with the truth just in general. The truthfulness of God's people gives weight and credibility to the truthfulness of the message that we proclaim. There's a final reason, I think, that this permission gets taken back. And it's really interesting how the Lord takes this thing, takes this event, and uses it for his own glory and uses it for his own end. We see the power of God. We see uh, the, the all-knowing nature of God, and we see the transformative power of the sovereignty of God. See, we ought not forget that the crucifixion of Jesus himself was powered by lies. Remember his trial? They called witnesses because the Old Testament said, listen, you can't put a guy to death without at least two witnesses. And so the Bible tells us that witnesses were called. They were lying. In fact, their stories didn't agree. It was obvious even to those who were sitting there that this was just complete baloney. 
And so it's interesting, isn't it? That through this event that is powered by lies, that's fueled by lies, namely the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's stunning, isn't it, then, that our God takes that lie and uses it for this event that is the means then by which God will forgive liars. Think about that. Hey, we're going to lie about your son so that he's going to get crucified. Oh yeah, and by the way, that crucifixion is the very means that God is going to use to forgive liars. The permission has been taken back. And this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that God in His power and God in His sovereignty and God in His goodness takes this horrific event, this horrible miscarriage of justice that is powered by lies, and that's the means by which our good and gracious and great God forgives liars. So we can come to the table this morning, and we don't have to posture. We don't have to pretend to be something that we are not. We don't have to have a dubious relationship with the truth as it relates to who or what we are. No, we can come. We can come to the table and be reminded that even though we are liars, God forgives our lies through the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Oh Lord, we've we've said this is uh it's simple but it's not easy. And our wonderful promise this morning is that you equip us by your spirit for that which you call us to do. And so, Father, this I, I pray this morning, this would not be heard as a kind of, well, just suck it up and be a truth teller. But, Father, I pray that we would understand that through your Spirit, you gift and equip your people for the kind of life that you call us to. And so, Lord, may we live as your people in dependence upon the Lord Jesus. May we live in dependence upon the continual work of your Spirit. And Father, may we be those who are known for our truth-telling. And Lord, when we are not, would we be those who are known for our repentance? Would we be known as those who are quick to come before you and to confess not just to you but also to others the ways in which we have fallen short of that which our King calls us to. For we pray this now in his name. Amen.